everybody. So the song this week is Smoking Out the Window by Bruno Mars. So lots of warnings for today's episode. Um, We're going to be talking about death, dying, suicide, and traumatic events. So if that is not your vibe right now or not something that you want to hear about, um, maybe go find another episode or wait till next week's. Professional warning, as always, I am not a professional. Maybe one day I will be, but today is not that day. So do not take anything I say as gospel, and please seek professional help if you think you need it. Okay, I'm actually really excited about today's episode. We're going to be talking about near-death experiences. If anyone knows me well, they know that I have been obsessed with the afterlife since I was a kid. And that makes me sound insane, but honestly, I was one of those kids that always wanted to watch the ghost shows and was totally into all of that. And funny enough, I grew up and I spent six years doing paranormal research, and we'll be talking about that a little bit more in a bit. So we're going to start off with what researchers think the reason behind near-death experiences are. And near-death experiences are classified as an unusual experience taking place on the brink of death, and they're usually recounted by a person after recovery, typically an out-of-body experience or having visions of being in a tunnel of light. About 1 in 10 patients with cardiac arrest in a hospital setting setting undergoes uh, such an episode. And these are the people that that report it, and I honestly think that the number is probably higher. People just don't want to sound crazy, so they don't say anything. But there are thousands of survivors who have these harrowing touch-and-go situations, and they tell stories about leaving their damaged bodies behind and encountering a realm beyond the everyday experience. And it doesn't really have any constraints of time and space. And these stories share broad commonalities, like becoming pain-free, seeing a bright light at the end of a tunnel, and other visual phenomena. Um, Detaching from one's body, floating above it, or maybe even flying off into space, which a lot of people classify as out-of-body experiences. They might include meeting loved ones, living or dead, or spiritual beings such as angels, a recollection or even review of lifetime memories, both good and bad. And this is where the saying, my life flashed before my eyes, comes from. Um, There's also reports of distorted time and space. If we're going to look at this from a physiological or scientific standpoint to begin with, scientists have a few explanations. They theorize that this occurs because of reduced blood flow to the visual periphery of the retina, which means vision loss occurs first. So this could explain um, progressively narrowing tunnel vision and maybe that tunnel that everybody goes through when they have these experiences. A man named Raymond Moody was the first researcher to come up with the term near-death experience, and he was joined by Bruce Grayson, and together they did the first studies on what was happening to people who were experiencing near-death experiences. Uh, Noticing patterns in what people would share about their near-death stories They turned uh, a phenomena once thought of as false memories or dismissed as feverish hallucination into a field of empirical study. Moody is quoted as saying, I operate under the hypothesis that all our thoughts, memories, perceptions, and experiences are an inescapable consequence of the natural causal powers of our brain rather than any supernatural ones. 
So he really didn't believe anything supernatural or spooky was going on. He basically wanted to understand the physiology and the neurology behind what was going on as people died. Similar experiences are commonly reported when ingesting psychoactive substances from a class of hallucinogens linked to the neurotransmitter serotonin, including psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, and ayahuasca. And these are consumed as a part of religious, spiritual, or even just recreational practices. There is going to 150% be an episode coming up where I talk about the new psychological research going on with microdosing hallucinogenics um, because it is a thing and it seems to be doing surprisingly well for those with depression and PTSD. What I found interesting while researching for this episode was that near-death experiences are no more likely to occur in devout believers than in secular or non-practicing subjects. Some scientists say that the underlying neurological sequence of events in a near-death experience is difficult to determine with any precision because of the dizzying varieties of ways in which the brain can be damaged. Doctors classify modern death as irreversible loss of brain function. And when the brain is starved of blood flow and oxygen, uh, the patient faints in a fraction of a minute and their EEG, their electrical electrical impulses, uh, become flat. So we all know the term flatline. And this implies that large-scale spatial distributed electrical activity within the cortex, which is the outer layer of the brain, the wrinkly part that most people visualize when they think of a brain, has broken down. So one theory of what happens when we clinically die is like a town that loses power one neighborhood at a time. So local regions of the brain go offline one after the other. And the mind whose substrate is whichever neurons remain capable of generating electrical activity, does what it always does, and it tells a story shaped by the person's experience, memory, and cultural expectations. To the person undergoing it, the near-death experience is as real as anything the mind produces during normal waking, when you're conscious, and when the entire brain is shut down, because of the complete power loss, the brain and the mind is extinguished along with consciousness. And if and when oxygen and blood flow are restored, the brain boots up and the narrative flow of experience resumes. The most common reports by people who experience near-death experiences are that their experiences did not feel like a dream or a hallucination, but was more real than real life. Now I'm going to share one of the most profound things that has ever happened to me in a minute. But let me just say, there really is no better way to describe it than that. Uh, Language in itself seems to come short when trying to explain the other side. And before I share that, though, um, researchers have again tried to explain why near-death experiences are so similar. And one source says that the causes for these experiences are assumed to include oxygen shortage, like I said, imperfect amnesia, and the body's neurochemical response to trauma. So basically, They can't be precise and pinpoint exactly what is happening in the brain, but they believe that the brain is attempting to save itself in some way, and it floods with different chemicals as it starves of oxygen, and this explains the experiences. One near-death experience that I wanted to touch on is that of a neuroscientist, and his name is Eben Alexander, and he taught at Harvard, among other places. 
It was Alexander who really upped the scientific stakes. He studied his own medical charts and came to the conclusion that he was in such a deep coma during his near-death experience, and his brain was so completely shut down that the only way to explain what he felt and saw was that his soul had indeed detached from his body and gone on a trip to another world, and he is very sure that the other side is real. Just something really interesting, not that someone looking at their own medical records may have um, the best outlook. I feel like that could be really biased, <laughs> but um, it was interesting to read anyway. So in short, scientists can't exactly explain it, but many refuse to believe that there is a possibility that there's actually an afterlife. And now we're going to get into the fun stuff. So remembering Raymond Moody from a few minutes ago, he did some studies on people who attempted suicide. He discovered that those that had near-death experiences when they attempted suicide did not experience punishment beyond death or the reason of trying to end their own lives. And this is one of the many times I am going to disagree with Western religion. You are not going to go to hell if you try and complete suicide. Moody stated that people who attempted suicide actually generally had an overwhelmingly positive experience coming back. And they speak of the same beautiful places waiting for people in the beyond as other people do. And those who come back seem to believe that life is more about love and knowledge than about anything else. I, I agree. Uh, they did see life in a better perspective, have greater self-confidence, and acknowledge the fact that since life does not end with death, escaping this worldly existence is not the answer to any problems. And this last line has stuck with me for years now because I figured this out a while ago from my own research. Just because you leave this life doesn't mean things will be any easier for you once you get to where you're going. And I know this sounds absolutely insane to some people, and that's fine. I've just experienced too much already in life um, without a doubt to know something else is going on. And we can agree to disagree. This realization of just transitioning, essentially, can be really disappointing for some people, as suicide is typically thought of as an end to suffering, but that isn't necessarily the case. Overall, those who have near-death experiences while trying to end their lives don't have different experiences from anyone else who goes through these experiences. However, as always, suicide attempt survivors do need a lot of support from those around them, for obvious reasons. So now I'm going to share some of the most interesting experiences I've had myself. When I was 16, I had a near-death experience. And to this damn day, I do not have any freaking idea how I'm alive. The science just does not make any sense to me. And then I'm going to follow that with a quote-unquote visitation I had three years ago. Okay, so my near-death experience. I had just turned 16 a few weeks before this. It was Easter long weekend. My then-boyfriend, my other friend, and I decided to go out four-wheeling on ATVs. And that morning I woke up and I was so dizzy. 
like dizziness I had never experienced before and I was like oh hell no I am not sick today like no I want to go have fun uh but every time I tried to stand up I got rank vertigo like my world was spinning and eventually I just pushed through it and I got ready and I left I remember my mom screaming at me to wear a helmet before I left that morning do 16 year olds have any fear no did I wear a helmet sure didn't we had a few hours of fun and it was spring and there was a lot of mud to play in and at one point my boyfriend was driving and I was on the back of his ATV and my friend was behind us my boyfriend gunned it pretending to race our friend and well he really went for it because we got going pretty quick about 100 kilometers an hour across this field and where we live it's flat like flat flat we were on bald prairie so you don't really expect the ground to just suddenly disappear out from under you but it did basically what happened was he didn't notice we were coming to the end of a field with a drop off to a road because i guess when you look across the field on the other side it matched up perfectly from a certain angle anyway he didn't see what was happening until the last second and he tried to slam on the brakes but that didn't do much and he said we did slow down a bit before we got airborne. So this is where things got really weird for me. I remember flying around trying to hang on as we got close to the edge because it got to be pretty rough terrain. And things went into ultra slow motion. And all I remember thinking is, oh, F, I didn't wear a helmet. Okay, now try and stay with me here. All my credibility may or may not go out the window with this next part. Just know that even if this was a hallucination and my brain was doing its best to save itself, this is the honest-to-God truth on what I experienced and remember about this accident. Okay, so things went into slow motion. My last thought was, oh shit, I didn't wear a helmet. And all of a sudden, we hit the edge, and I am absolutely catapulted off the back of this ATV. Those things are apparently very front heavy. Uh, it sprung me off the back and I started flying through the air. And as I'm flying, still seemingly in slow motion, I can see how far down it is. And I'm thinking, oh shit, this is not good. This is about to really hurt. And like not to mention how fast we were going. The physics were just not on our side in this situation. There was really nothing I could do at this point. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. And I remember hitting the ground and basically feeling like I had flattened like a pancake. One second I was weightless and then the next there was excruciating pain. It was like white hot lightning through my head and all the way down my spine. And that lasted maybe a second because I became unconscious. My head slammed into the road and I got knocked out. So the next series of events seemed to happen in a split second in our time. And when I say our time, it's because in our plane of existence, it seems that time is much more structured than it is past the veil. Or from this experience in the years of paranormal research and whatnot that I've done, that seems to be the case. And if anyone is curious, there will be an episode on this type of, this type of stuff in the future. Anyway. All of a sudden, I'm floating, probably 40 feet above the road we just landed on. I can see both of us, me and my boyfriend, and the ATV just demolished laying there. 
our friend hadn't made it down the embankment yet. She was trying to figure out how to get down there safely. But there's something else going on in the field across the road. Okay, now now stay with me here. I know this sounds like a bad fever dream, but just hear me out for a second. I have never seen anything like this since, and I have absolutely no way of proving this was real or even otherworldly or what have you. If I was hallucinating, it was a fucking weird thing to hallucinate. But this is what I remember. I look over, and there is a circle of robed people. And they all have, like, white hooded robes on, standing in a circle. And all of a sudden, a massive, bright, bright, white light forms above this circle. And this all happened so fast, I didn't have time to really process what was going on. I wasn't scared at all, though. I actually felt very okay. I just felt like I was supposed to watch. And this white ball of light grew until it was as wide as the circle. I'd probably estimate like 20 by 20 feet type thing. It was huge and bright, like brighter than bright and the whitest white. Like I, it's hard to describe. The rope things didn't pay any attention to me. They seemed very focused on this huge ball of light. And then all of a sudden I get literally sucked back into my body. And that's the best way to describe it. It was a split second of like magnetic pull and then BAM! I got slammed back into my body. And I remember waking up and oh my god the pain, holy shit. My head and my back hurt like hell. I opened my eyes and my boyfriend and the ATV were less than a foot away from crushing me where they landed. My boyfriend was unconscious and bleeding all over his face and stuff. The ATV had landed on top of him and drove his face into the gravel. My friend had just drove up and was trying to get the ATV off of him and she asked me for help. And I still don't know how my body was okay, but I just, I stood up and I helped her untangle him from this ATV. So she took off to ride home to get a vehicle to put him in. Uh, apparently we didn't have the brain capacity to call 911, I guess. Um, when she was gone, I got the ATV up and it somehow started. It was really mangled, but it started. And I put my boyfriend on the back and started trying to drive in the direction of my friend's farm. Um, he was semi-conscious, but clearly really messed up. We got home. And again, I have no idea why we didn't call 911. Uh, I called his stepdad who had dropped us off and told him what happened. And he came out to pick him up. And he did end up taking him to the hospital. And I called my dad and he came to get me. Uh, long story short, injury-wise, I had a very small chunk taken out of my leg from the gravel. You can barely see it now, almost 15 years later. I sprang my ankle and I limped around for a while after that and I'm very sure I had a concussion since I got knocked out. I also crushed, crushed my shoulder but not enough to really mess it up but since then I've been bucked off a few horses and had a few snowboarding accidents and I keep landing on the same shoulder and um, now it's on the verge of surgery. <laughs> my boyfriend on the other hand had to get stitches to put his face back together in a few spots had a dislocated shoulder, actually both his shoulders were dislocated, 
and he hurt his leg, but all in all, we came out so damn lucky. So, what happened with the whole weird ball of light and the I don't know what you want to call them? I have no idea. I have spent years trying to piece that one together. All I know is that somehow we hit the ground going stupid fast. And we should have had our brains smeared across the road and we didn't. I don't even have a mark or a goose egg where my face hit. Like, I had almost no evidence that that even happened. You tell me that that's not weird. How, how does a human body going at least 70 kilometers an hour after the brakes were hit, hit something, and then you just get up and walk away? Especially from a height, too. We were so lucky. Someone or something was making sure we lived that day. <laughs> Prove me wrong. So I have no idea what happened that day uh, to keep us alive and our brains in our heads, but it happened. Uh, a few years ago, I did try and look and see if anyone had experiences with these rogue figures. And it turns out quite a few people have. The majority say that they're guardians or guides of some sort. Whatever they are, I believe they are the reason we're both still alive. I don't know exactly what went on in that circle or what the ball of light was. I just know that there were a lot of odds stacked against us and we came out of it easy. Okay, now I'm really going to expose myself here. I'm a, I'm a spill the tea, as the kids say. So the years following this, uh, weird things started happening in my life. Uh, like weird paranormal things, not the typical kind of weird shit that happens in my life. Uh, I became really attuned to people in an odd way. And this makes me sound like I am 50 shades of fucking crazy. Uh, and I may or may not regret this one day. Um, but this seems to be the time in my life when like, I don't know what you want to call it, my sixth sense kind of took off. Uh, and by the time I was 18, I could look at people or objects and just, like, download information about them. It was, it was really weird. I could ignore it most of the time if I chose to, but if I wanted to, I could pick something up and just kind of, like, see its history. Like, download is a really, I feel like that's probably the best description. And I have no idea how else to describe it um, other than that. And I realize it sounds batshit crazy, like I get it. There's a reason I don't share many parts of this side of myself with people, because it makes me look insane. These days it's not nearly as strong because I've suppressed it for a few years now. And it's kind of like a muscle, you need, you need to work it for it to be easily accessible. No, I can't read minds. I would never, ever call myself a psychic or a medium. It's just a thing I can do sometimes. The most recent thing I can think of for when I used this was a few months ago. So my girlfriend is super corny and romantic. And I was going over there for a movie night one night. And she texts me and says, I did something really corny for our date. And I was like, okay, that's normal. But I was curious. Uh... And then all of a sudden I get this flash in my head and it's like this tent thing with like bed sheets. 
And my first thought was like, oh, that's cute. And then I was like, is this even accurate? Like, is this even right? So I asked her if she made a fort. And she's like, how the, how the hell did you know that? I don't talk about this stuff often with her, but she knows that I've done it in the past. And I always make the joke like, don't cheat on me because I'm going to know about it. <laughs> anyway, I really exposed myself today. <laughs> okay, on to the next last crazy story for this episode. May as well just really drive it home at this point. So I had a horse, my heart horse, my best friend on this entire planet. And I swear if reincarnation is real, there is an old soul in that horse and we were meant to meet each other in this lifetime. I met him when I was 16, right around the time of the accident I just talked about. And everyone was a little leery about me riding him because he had some anxiety issues. And he could be a bit unpredictable. And as a green as green could be rider, I would just like, meh. I just want to ride. I've been obsessed with horses my entire life. And well, wouldn't you know it? We clicked immediately and we rode together for years. He taught me everything I know. Uh, we competed in rodeos together. We trail rode. We did it all. And when I was 19, I officially bought him and moved him to a boarding facility. And years went by and we'd retired from rodeo and we basically just trail rode and had fun. And while that facility was closing at the end of 2017, and we needed a new place to go. And that winter, I had also started back at university to finish this degree. And I had looked around for boarding barns and landed on one that I thought would do. He was a very easy keeper. Uh, he didn't need 24-7 care. Um, he was very capable of being out in a herd with a large bale and be fine. I was there a few times a week to ride and check on him and so on. And that spring I decided that I needed a vacation after such a busy semester. I was also working full time uh, at work, so busy was an understatement in my life. So before I left, I had gone out to see my horse and he was starting to lose his winter coat, but he looked fine otherwise. I went away for two weeks to the Rockies and I get back and I go out there. My horse was so emaciated, I barely recognized him. He had no food or, food or clean water while I was gone. I immediately moved him that day and I had my vet come and check on him. Yes, I absolutely torched that barn manager. It's a whole story. I'll tell it one day. So I moved him to a friend's house and I had my vet checking on him multiple times a week. Uh, we did all kinds of tests to make sure he wasn't just sick with something and that this evil fucking woman didn't just starve him, but um, everything came back normal. And the thing with horses is that they have super, super sensitive digestive systems. It does not take much to throw it off, enough to be fatal sometimes. Well, about a month went by and he was just not recovering he just started to fail on all fronts and you could tell he was tired and one morning i was on my way out there and my friend called me and she said that he was down and he couldn't get up and if you know anything about horses you know that that is one of the worst things that a horse can do that's like the kiss of death and when i got there you could just tell that he was done um I have never had to make a more difficult decision in my entire life, but 
I knew that he was done trying. So I called my vet and I told him that he needed to be put out of his misery. We did everything we could and he was just tired. He was shutting down and he was suffering. And if there were anything I could do for him now, it was to just let him go as peacefully as possible. The vet came and he euthanized him while I held his head in my lap and I bawled like a baby. It is still the worst thing I've ever gone through to this day and man, I have had some shit happen in life, but this one, that, it's just one of the most painful things I've ever had to do. Anyway, that's the long story short. Fast forward about a week after his death, I was a goddamn mess of a human. I was so wrecked by what had happened and how I couldn't save him even though I felt like I owed him everything. Never mind the fact that the justice system gives zero Fs about livestock, and I'll talk about that in the episode regarding the circumstances around this whole thing. In any case, I turned into um, a shell of a human uh, following his death, and about a week after he died, I cried myself to sleep one night, and I have um, this dream, if you want to call it that. When people who have near-death experiences talk about things being more real than real life, this is exactly what that was. Uh, if this was what the afterlife is made of, sign me right up. I, I woke up and I was wearing a white robe thing. You see how this is becoming a theme. And I was in this field and it was greener than green flowing like perfect, perfect grass. Um, you could smell how green it was. It was like super pungent. It was sunny like sunset and it was warm. And I turned around and my horse is standing there and he looked really good. Like he looked like he did during like peak rodeo performance type fitness like super built muscular shiny just perfect and I'm speechless and again stay with me here for this um <laughs> he basically communicated through like my mind like I could hear I could hear this in my head that I obviously wasn't getting it and that I needed to <laughs> get it together and that he was fine now um Apparently he knew that I didn't believe him because he started like prancing around me like, look, I'm fine. I feel great, actually. And I'm still standing there like speechless, like I can't say anything. But somehow he got the message that I wanted to know, which was, what did she do to you? And he said, it doesn't matter now, but you're not okay, and it shouldn't be like this. And he kept trying to reassure me he was okay. And then he said something that I'm still trying to figure out because it still doesn't make sense to me. But he said, I have to go. They don't know I did this. So I have to go. And then he turned and ran off into this field and disappeared. And I woke up out of a dead sleep and just started crying. It was so real. It felt more real than real life, like other people have said. Um, 
and I, I can't even begin to explain it to people. And I know that these stories make me sound absolutely off my rocker. But it's been three and a half years since then. And I still remember that dream experience, whatever, like it was yesterday. And I honestly cherish it so much. Not many people get opportunities like that as absolutely horrible as that situation was on so many levels. I was lucky enough to have a chance to say goodbye. I got to be there and hold him as he died. And I had what I believe to be a visitation after the fact. I know that doctors and psychologists love to say that the mind is a powerful thing. And when people grieve, having a dream like that isn't that hard to imagine. But again, after the things that I've experienced in my waking life and all the research and the opportunities I had during my days and in investigations, yeah, I'm not blind to the possibilities of something else. Okay, now that everyone thinks I'm insane and I have no business in psychology, uh, this would be a good time to just say that I'm not afraid to die. Um, being dead doesn't scare me. I know that there is either something, and based off of what I've seen, it seems pretty freaking awesome, or there will be nothing, and nothing is nothing. Being dead doesn't scare me, it's the getting there that does. Like, no one wants to suffer a horrible death. No one wants to be stuck in the in-between or experience months or years of pain beforehand. It's the getting there that bothers a lot of people, myself included. And I'd like to believe that death is a transition. As I've said before, I was part of a paranormal research team for six years. It was an amazing, terrifying, mind-altering experience. That's going to be another episode on this podcast because, y'all, it will blow your mind. Long story short, I am damn sure there's something going on that a lot of people can't see or connect with, or at least they ignore for the most part. And I've just had too many experiences to pretend that there isn't something else going on. And uh, I'll discuss more of that in my paranormal research episode. So if this type of thing interests you and you like to read, go find the book called Journey of Souls by Dr. Michael Newton. He has a PhD and he's a clinical psychologist. And he's also a member of the American Counseling Association. He's taught university level classes over the years. He's written a few books about his sessions with people who have these types of experiences. I read Journey of Souls this summer, and it was interesting. Um, I went in with a very open mind, just kind of seeing what his perspective was, and was surprised with some of the things he wrote about. Honestly, I should probably track down more of his stuff. I just love to read about other people's experiences and looking at things from an open kind of perspective. People have tried to say that the experiences in that book are BS, which I don't know, they very well could be. That's why I read it with an open mind. Um, some people have issues with regression therapy, so that would be why they were very skeptical. Also, if these types of things interest you and you want something else to read, look into uh, Life Blueprints or Soul Contracts. And I have a book called Soul Contracts by Danielle McKinnon, and it was interesting too. It kind of follows a similar concept as karma, um, if you know the actual role that karma plays. With things like soul contracts, 
Um, basically, we agreed to live the life we came into, to try and learn certain lessons and overcome challenges so that our souls can evolve. And I find that whole concept so interesting. Um, that also kind of gives like meaning to our suffering. And I think that's probably why a lot of people are really interested in this. That also ties into what I mentioned earlier about how suicide is not actually a way out. If you don't learn the lesson you were meant to learn in this life, you will have to relive it in different lifetimes uh, until you do. And that is how our souls evolve and grow. So for those who weren't aware of how spiritual I was, now you do. I definitely don't get to practice as much as I'd like these days, but it's always something that seems to ground me and give me guidance and it can make me feel better when shit is all like topsy-turkey. I also do tarot sometimes just for myself and I'm not kidding when I say they haven't been wrong yet and I use them sparingly, but they are oddly accurate. And I know like that whole concept seems wishy-washy to people and I can understand why. Alright, I know this was a slightly different podcast than normal, but I hope at the very least it was a bit entertaining. I have received more questions from Instagram. Again, thank you for sending them in, Um, but I'm guessing this episode is already longer than normal, so I'm going to save them for the next episode. Um, I'm attempting to put out an episode every second Friday. And also, I do polls on my Instagram for future episodes, so if you want to vote and participate uh, and vote for which one you want to hear next, go follow Psych Dyke Podcast on Instagram. Alright, have a good day, y'all.